Welcome to the Cross Loganville's podcast channel. Thank you for joining us as we begin our series on Ephesians. All right, let me make this statement. If you do not access uh, my notes that I make available online, I've got eight pages of notes. One of the pages of my notes is called the major themes throughout the book of Ephesians. There's seven major themes. There's a ton of scripture that go with it. I'm not going to hit that live with you. But if you will go online, thecrossloganville.org, and uh, once you see the uh, message from today, there'll be three little icons there. One will be a video where you can watch it, the other will be audio, and the other one is a little notepad. If you click the notepad, uh, you can have access to that. My buddy Alan Opdyke sitting here. Uh, I send Alan my notes every week beforehand, but Alan has printed out pretty much everything I think I've done for the last year. Uh, all my John notes, he's like, hey, can you send them to me? I need to make sure I'm printing. And he's got notebooks of these things. So when you're retired and you have nothing else to do, you can go through Tim sermons with me. Uh, no, but I do appreciate that, Alan. Uh, do me a favor. If you've got your Bible, I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll also uh, spend a majority of our time in Acts chapter 19 today. Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, when you get into studying a book of the Bible, Okay, this is going to be more discourse teaching as Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus. You've got predominantly in the New Testament, you've got narratives, which is a ton of stories. And then you've got discourse, which is where a lot of doctrine and theology is going to be birthed. The book of Ephesians features a lot of discourse style teaching. All right, as soon as you start to spend time uh, diving into a, a book of the Bible, you're always going to ask fundamental questions. Who's writing it? Who's he writing it to? What are the major themes? Is there any tension going on at this time? Is there contrast? Is there comparisons? What do we know that is happening when he's writing this letter? Okay? So those are fundamental questions you always insert into the text. Because again, this book, the Bible, as we study it, the Bible is a living book. It's not a dead book. It is a relational book. And just as I would go to my friend if I was first meeting him and I'd go, uh, Paul, Paul, tell me a little bit about you. Uh, what's your full name? Where are you from? How old are you? I would start to get information on him. We do the same thing when we study through the book uh, uh, of Ephesians, okay? So you would have to ask the question, Paul, he identifies himself right out of the gate. And he identifies himself in this way. He goes, I am a delegate, uh, an apostle. I am a special agent of Jesus Christ sent on a specific mission. That's, that's very important because there's so much polytheistic stuff going on. There's so many false teachers and false prophets even of that day. Paul specifically identif identifies himself. He goes, I am a special agent of Jesus sent on a specific mission. Mission, And he establishes that his credibility is God-given. I have God-willed authority. God has willed it and has blessed me and anointed me to carry out this message I'm about to speak to you. You already know who I am. 
We'll get into that. I've already spent time with you. But God's anointing is on me, and I am writing specifically to you as if God himself was speaking, okay? Paul is not a lone ranger, and there's a lot of ministers that go out that become lone rangers. And Paul, even in saying that I am an apostle, I am sent, I am delegated, he is establishing who he is representing right out of the gate. That's going to be important as we build in this. Now, who is Paul? If you go back and study him, his early life was defined by religious zeal. Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 7, Paul lays out a biographical sketch, if you will, of his life. He had extreme devotion to the law. I'll unpackage that. Paul knew what the law was all about. When you look at his life, his early life, Paul uh, exercised a lot of brutal violence. His harsh treatment and persecution toward Christians stands out big time of who he was. His later years, his later years is way different. Once Paul was ambushed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, he became all about announcing and declaring the good news of the gospel wherever he went. He was all about the kingdom of God. We'll break that down with him, okay? So he was born... He was born, his name was Saul. His name was Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel. Again, his family is really, really strict, strong Jewish people, okay? Pharisees. When you go back and look, he was named after Saul. Saul was the first king. When Israel said, we want to be uh, like the other nations, we want to have a king like the other nations, Saul was anointed as the first king. He was man's choice, not God's choice. David was God's choice. He ends up falling, but that's where he got his name from. He comes from an area called Tarshish. He grew up in a family of Pharisees. They were hardcore, strict keepers of the law. You've got three main groups in that day in regards to Judaism, if you will. You've got Pharisees. And it was always said about them, they were not fair, you say. They were hard, cord, strict. The Sadducees, that was another group. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the re- resurrection. And then you had a group called the Essenes. John the Baptist was raised by the Essenes. There are three major groups when you go back and study at that day. This was a very fundamental, they were fundamentalist at the core. They kept the law. They were very, very strict. One of the things that you'll find in a strict Pharisee, Even as Saul was growing up, they eliminated any potential contamination of Gentiles and Greeks from from Saul's life. They're like, you're not going to get around those kind of people. They were very strict, but they were very prejudiced at the same time. You follow me? They had nothing of Greek influence even close to who they were. It's so interesting when you study it. That that's the way he was brought up. But God will, God will change this guy's narrative in such a powerful way. And who becomes God's spokesperson to the Gentiles? Paul. He was brought up. We're not going to have anything to do with him. Once God got a hold of his heart, he became God's ambassador and messenger to the Gentiles. When you look at who Saul was, he was very, very, very brilliant. Many people believe that he was one of the sharpest minds of his day. He was brilliant in language. I started pondering this. He spoke Greek. He spoke Latin. He spoke Hebrew. 
He spoke, he spoke Aramaic. When it came to being able to communicate with a variety of people groups, this guy was brilliant. And God is going to use all of this upbringing and training that he has to take him to people groups that very few people could minister to. I mean, again, think about where he's coming from. Brought up in the law, brought up knowing uh, so much about the strict standards of Judaism and, and being a Pharisee. Think, think about this, being able to speak all these uh, languages. When he was 13 years old, and again, as we break down this, the stages of Jewish education, Bet Sefer, House of the Book, Bet Midrash, where they learn to dialogue and, and, and uh, really debate. And then you go into Bet Talmudship. It was only the best of the best and the choice of the choice that rabbis would pick to say, hey, come follow me. I want you to be my student. When he was 13 years old, he was selected by Rabbi Gamaliel, who is one of the most brilliant, uh, respected scholars of his day. And for six years, Paul sat underneath the teaching of Gamaliel from the time he was 13 until the time he was about 19 years old. And there, he even studied deeper during that time Jewish history, the Psalms, all of the prophets. And so when it came to learning and understanding, we're dealing with one of the most educated men of his day. It's important to know that. He developed a style in that day, and I was reading this, called Diatribe. Now, we talk about Midrash where you're able to sit around and discuss and debate and interact. Diatribe is a different level. It's like Midrash on steroids. But there he was able to learn how to discuss the finer points of the law, how to have stronger interaction. That's the reason, Alan, when you read Acts 17 and he's at Mars Hill and the discussions that he's having, he's equipped, he's sharp, he's brilliant. He knows how to interact with people in such a powerful way. He went on to become a lawyer. Many scholars believe that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the 71 men that was really uh, that ruled the Jewish life and religion of that day. You follow me? A little backdrop on him. He had incredible zeal in his life that led to arrogance, that led to becoming a religious extremist almost. He was so convinced that Judaism and anything that raised its head against it needed to be dealt with severely. That's where he was at. And so all of a sudden, the pivotal moment that happens in his life, Acts chapter 9, he's walking from Jerusalem down the Damascus Road. He had asked for permission uh, from the high priest to go to Damascus to arrest these so-called followers of the way, these Christians. Do I have permission to go arrest them? He was there when Stephen was stoned. He wants to arrest them, bring them back, possibly kill them, possibly imprison them. Paul is on a mission and all of a sudden, as he, he is walking the Damascus Road, Acts 9, this blinding light from heaven knocks him to his knees, to his face, and he's staggered. And, and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, transformation right now is about to happen in his life. He's about to encounter the risen God. He hears the words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul responds, 
Who are you, Lord? And Jesus emphatically declares, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul, you think you're attacking these followers. You're attacking me and you're attacking my name. Many believe that even Paul was in audience where Jesus had spoken at times. Many believe that. He has a major encounter with God. He goes from being an antagonizer to becoming the greatest apologist of that known time and probably still throughout history. God will use him to write almost half of the New Testament. He goes, Andrew, from being this persecutor now to being a proclamator of truth and hope. He goes from being willing to, uh, within a mission of, of desiring to kill, to one of brokenness being willing to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God changes him. So much so that God changed his name. Nomen est omen in the Latin, Miss Janice, means your name is your destiny. His name was Saul, which means admired, which means recognized, which means applauded. And God said, I'm going to change your name from Saul to Paul, which means little one and humbled one. You've got to stop and you've got to consider what happened to this guy. And you've got to ask the question, have you experienced a radical turning point in your life? Has the light from heaven blinded you and has the grace of the gospel penetrated you and transformed your life? Have you been born again? Have you truly been saved? And I think for a lot of people, they play games with God. They run to God on God's terms or on their terms and wanting God to do something, but they never come to God on God's terms. And Paul, he meets God on God's terms. Paul doesn't negotiate what it's going to look like, what it's going to be like. And you've got to ask the question, have you been radically transformed? So as you dive into this, and as we get into the the narrative of Ephesians, you've got to give a backdrop again on who Paul is. For some of us, we've been acquainted with looking at his life. For many of us, we don't know much about him. But what can we take away? What can we learn from the life of Paul? I want to give you two things. One, I would tell you this, God can save anyone. The story of Saul to Paul reminds us that sinful, broken people can be transformed by God's amazing grace it's found only in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? God can save anyone. And the truth of the matter is this. And here's the truth before God. It doesn't matter how good you think a person is or how evil you think a person is. Only God can save and change a person's narrative. When we violently repent and we surrender and we turn from our wicked ways and confess and yield to the Lordship of Christ. Only God can change us. I've been around for a long time now. You can try everything. You can go to rehab and you can go to meetings and you can go to whatever. But until you allow the transforming light of Jesus Christ to penetrate your heart, you're not going to change. And here would be a second thing I would tell you. God can save anyone, but God can also humble and use anyone to be a powerful witness for the gospel. And when you study his life, 
from that point on, he was not afraid to tell others about Jesus. He was not afraid to open his mouth and declare the goodness of God. He spent all of his days from this point of transformation declaring with boldness the good news of the gospel. That's why he would even write in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power to everyone who believes unto salvation. You've got to have it. And he proclaimed that message until he was martyred. Paul, Saul the antagonist, turns Paul the apologist. Is God using you? Where are you making yourself available today to be used by God? What excuses and hang-ups do you still have? If there's ever a time in human history for the believer and the redeemed of the Lord to be outspoken with gentleness and love toward their neighbor, it's now people are searching, people are starving, people are pondering, where's life? And we in Christ, Tim, we have the answer then I would pose this question to you. What do we know about the church of Ephesus? What do we know about that church? Well, Paul spent almost three years there proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Paul spent almost three years in Ephesus. If you look at the map of where Ephesus is, it's uh, geographically located in what is called Asia Minor of that day. Now, if you look down to the very bottom of the screen, you'll see Jerusalem and all the way up until Nazareth, and there's where the Sea of Galilee is, and Barb and I had the opportunity to go to the northern part of Israel where you could see over into Syria and uh, other areas. He was born in Tarshish, but now he's made his way over to Ephesus. What do you know about that area? It's a seaport. It's where the Mediterranean and the Aegean Sea kind of join together. And when you get these seaports, you're going to get a lot of different people uh, congregating there, whether it be like Miami or whether it be like New York or whatever. When you get a seaport, you start to, you start to draw a lot of different people. And when you start to look at Ephesus, it was a business mecca, commercial mecca of that day. There was so much business traffic going on. They prided themselves as being almost the intellectual hub of that day. They were very arrogant about their intellect. They'd almost be like Ivy League. You know, it's, it's like where Harvard and, and Yale and Princeton and these schools were. If you go back and study, Ephesus prided itself. This is one of the smartest areas on the planet. It was also a very religious center. It was the fourth largest city in that day. About 250,000 people were there. Ephesus, know where it's at. Know what we're talking about. Intellectual hub, they had incredible libraries in Ephesus. One library boasted that they had over 15,000 scrolls of information. I mean, again, they prided themselves on being smart and brilliant. The pursuit of information in Ephesus what was so valued. And that's the reason it took an intellect like Saul turned Paul that could reason with these people. He knew the fundamental arguments of philosophy of that day, but they prided themselves. Look at how smart we are. They also was known, uh, Ephesus, for their magic and sorcery and, witch and witchcraft. When you go back and study it, 
It was a very diseased area. There were volumes upon volumes of books on witchcraft, on being superstitious, on how uh, to communicate with evil spirits. This was happening in Ephesus. This had a powerful influence over the minds of the people of that day. And you look and you go, man, the people of Ephesus were very uh, superstitious. They were very misguided. It was also home of the temple called Artemis. Artemis, uh, the Latin is Diana. You'll hear these words in Ephesus. But it was a 425-foot-tall statue of the goddess Artemis. And when people would come and celebrate and worship around Artemis, there was witchcraft and there was sorcery and there was drunkenness and there was all this type of sexual perversion that took place. It was a multi-breast kind of female goddess that people would come and worship. And Artemis and the worship of Artemis had such a strong hold in Ephesus. Very sexually perverted. There was a huge theater in uh, Ephesus. It would seat about 25,000. And Barb and I, we've seen some of the rubble of the left behinds of some of these great theaters of old. But this is where sporting events and concerts and their Broadway plays of that day and political and religious debates would take place. They loved entertainment. They loved pleasure. They loved to see knowledge showcased. You follow me? That was Ephesus. And it was somewhat of a godless style society. It was pagan ruled. It would be compared probably in our day to Vegas or Bourbon Street. You get there and you're like, oh, where is God? Where is the presence of the Lord here? That is where the church of Ephesus is going to be birthed. Very famous uh, city. Uh, Very sexually perverted. Very hedonistic. Very arrogant. And Paul's going to spend three years in Ephesus. Now, follow me here. I want you to have understanding on this so bad. I want you to get this. This is where the church is about to be birthed in Ephesus. There were already some there that believed Messiah Jesus was coming. If you read Acts 19, Mike, this is so crucial. Acts 19, like 1 through 6, 1 through 7, when Paul gets to Ephesus, he finds a couple of guys, that many, many scholars believe there was up to probably 12 guys there. And Paul approaches them and he poses this question to them. He goes, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Some of my charismatic and Pentecostal friends will land on this passage right here and try to promote that there is a second and a third filling of the Spirit. They will teach you that you ask Christ to save you, but there's a later time that you get the Holy Spirit. It's, and they will go back to Acts 19 and quote this. Remember when Paul showed up at Ephesus and he asked them, did y'all receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we didn't. And they stopped there. See, there's a second filling of the Spirit. Follow the text. Paul then looks at them and says, whose baptism did y'all enter into? And they said, we entered into John the Baptist's baptism. When John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance, was it pre or post-Pentecost? It was pre 
Pentecost. He was decapitated before Jesus ever went to the cross, before Jesus ever cries out and bows his head and gives up the spirit. How can you receive what's not available? Whose baptism did you receive? John the Baptist. Oh, that was a baptism of repentance. He lays hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. Scripture says they're speaking in tongues, whatever. But that's so important to know. Because when we come to faith in Christ, as we'll get into Ephesians 1 in more detail, we're told in that first chapter that the seal or promise of God is God gives us the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that you need another person or 14 people laying hands on you to, for you to get it. He who has the Son, bam. But up until that time, when these people said, yes, we believe Yeshua, Master Jesus is coming. We believe the Savior is coming. We believe. We believe. So when, when, when you believed, what'd you get? Oh, John baptized us. We're repenting. We believe Jesus. Cool. Does that make sense? Come on. Kenny, is that good? Andrew, makes sense? All right, I want y'all to really understand that because right out of the gate, which that's what we're uh, pondering, okay? If you get into Acts 19, verses 8, 10, in that area, Paul went into the synagogue. He preached boldly, persuading all about the kingdom of God. This went on for the next two years so that both Jews and Greeks remember his upbringing. We're not going to have anything to do with Gentiles. We're staying away from anything Greek. Paul goes in realizing that the gospel is for all people, black, white, brown, Gentiles, Samaritans, Jews, whatever. And they heard the word of the Lord. Here's what ends up happening. The church in Ephesus is now starting to be birthed. Come on, Addie. It's starting to be birthed. People are repenting. People are hearing the good news of the gospel. People are hearing that a resurrection of the dead has been made famous by Jesus, that he's conquered death, hell, and the grave. And people are going, I believe, I believe. Paul is preaching. He's going into these places where people are somewhat religious, and he's telling the truth of the gospel. Verse 11, God gave Paul power, a supernatural anointing, to perform these unusual miracles. I, I was like looking at it. Okay, there's, there's in theology, there's all, these, there, there, there's all these different camps out there. And some people believe in dispensational theology, which means there were certain things that happened for a certain period of time. And, and, and those things are kind of faded now. I, I don't know. They're, 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 it can get crazy at times. But I do believe that God will raise up certain things. And if miracles need to happen to get people's attention, to drive them to the gospel, God will use it. And God was giving Paul supernatural anointing. And there was healings and all this stuff taking place. Even so much that they were taking handkerchiefs. And I've seen others try to mimic this over the years, televangelists or whatever. But they were taking handkerchiefs that Paul would, would lay his hands on. And they were laying them on people and people were being healed. And you will say, oh, you, if you just send me $20,000, I'll send you this. So stop it. This was supernatural. People have tried to mimic it for years. Imposters have come and gone, Neil. Look at verse 13 through 16 of Acts 19. It says a group of Jews at that time was traveling around from town to town, and they were casting out evil spirits. 
They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out. The seven sons of Sceva were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence, them, that they fled the house naked and battered. And I'm reading this going, you don't want to try to mimic or play with the things of God. I remember in high school, I remember old school back in the late 70s. I remember seeing these thinking girls get into fights. I remember seeing girls getting mad at each other and yanking hair and earrings being yanked off and, and shirts being ripped and bras. I have never seen anybody get beat so bad that their drawers were not on them. And when you read this story right here, their drawers got beat off of them. Beat the drawer, ran away naked. And I think a lot of people at times even flirt with the things of God and they're mimicking they're imposters. You better, you better make sure if you're coming in the name of Jesus that you're really clothed with his power. See, the power of the gospel was going out, and I believe God was exposing everything that was not of him so that he could emphasize really what was of him. You get into verses 17 through 20. The story spread quickly throughout all of Ephesus. What? People are coming to faith. The power of God is going out. Listen to this. Jews and Greeks and went to all. Fear descended on the city and the name of Jesus was greatly honored. I want you to get this. Fear descended. The name of Jesus was being greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery, magic, witchcraft, they brought their magic books and burned them at a public bonfire, the value of the books was several million dollars. According to what scholar and commentary you read, some believe, Jack, it was between 10 and 50 million dollars that they burned in all of these witchcraft sorcery books. So the message about the Lord spread and had powerful impact. Listen to me. I believe this is crucial. The church in Ephesus was birthed, was vibrant because of repentance. When these new converts, Dan, placed their faith and surrendered, they were so transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they violently repented. They were so serious about a Jesus-only economy that they burned up their evil resources. They eliminated their sin. Millions of dollars went up in flames. That's how the church was birthed. And to me, that is what is so desperately needed today. There's so many people that claim I'm coming to Christ to save me because I don't want the penalty of hell. But they're not burning up their idols. They're not getting rid of their idols. They're not getting rid of things that are contaminating 
their lives. Repentance, a turning from sin, violent repentance, brokenness, godly sorrow. And can I tell you something? I've thought about this, and you know my background. But to me, during this time of of quarantine and then during this time of how are we going to handle certain isolations and social distancing, God has stripped away. He's allowed it to be stripped away. Concerts, sports, entertainment, whatever. And the theaters that people worship in are empty. They're empty. And I believe for some of us, and I had to deal with this in my own personal life, guys. When I surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, I was almost 23 years old, and I realized that my love and bondage with baseball had a stronghold on my life. I loved the game, but I got to where I loved God and enjoyed the game. But for so many of us, we love pleasure, we love entertainment, we love the theater. We love whatever it is. And I look at it. And Barb, part of the revival and awakening that took place in Ephesus was a result of them burning anything that separated them from God. It's not like they said, well, this is almost like $15, $20 million worth of books right here. Why don't we take those, let's have a yard sale and sell them to some other people. We'll take that money and we'll use it for the kingdom. They're like, that's straight from hell. Burn it. Burn it. And my concern is that we make exceptions for the flesh in too many areas. We do. Are you saying you can't go to a ball game? No, I I still enjoy it. But when it dominates and controls and becomes the idol and focal point of your life, whatever it is, stop it. And I think we are in desperate need of a big bonfire. I think we're in need of taking the bait pipes, those porn outlets, that hidden closet, wine, your alcohol, whatever, that you still run to to sedate, medicate, or to try to find relief from, I think it's time, individually and corporately, we need to have a big bonfire and get rid of our crap. If we're serious about the gospel, the church was birthed through radical repentance. Don't don't miss this. The church became alive through radical repentance. And I will tell you this, it became a threat to Ephesus. When the people that were coming to faith in Christ, that were getting serious, that were sharing the gospel with other people, when when they got all fired up and were serious about it, it became a threat to the culture. Paul preaches a sermon about polytheistic beliefs and all hell breaks loose. You pick it up in Acts 19, Uh, Verse 23, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began when a man by the name of Demetrius, a silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together. 
guys, listen, you know that our wealth comes from this business, but this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't gods at all. I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped around the world, she's going to be robbed for her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled. They began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. What happened? What What happened? It is it's nothing new. What happened? Dude, what you're doing is jacking with our money, our power, and our control. We make money from these people. We've got power in this area. We can control so much. You're messing with our money, power, and control. If you read later there in that story, they started writing Fights broke out. People started getting all jacked up. Why do people riot and fight today? You're messing with my money. You're messing with my power. You're messing with my control. And there's this tug of war over power and control right now that we're seeing manifested like never before. And when the gospel of Jesus Christ starts to sweep in and people stop clubbing, and people stop liquor storing, and people stop, and all of a sudden, they are not spending their money there. People are going to get mad. Man, the church, man, is having too much influence. The church is having too much impact. Evangelical followers of, of Jesus now got serious about this, and it's jacking with the cultural money, power, and control. I'm reading through this going, man, This is legit right here. So what is the word for the church today? If you study it, as we get into the book in detail, what is the word for the church today? I believe the word is repent. Ian is confess. It's turn from sin violently. It's pressing to the Lord. It's live a generous life before God. It's destroy any false idol that you're holding on to. Destroy it. can be even a marriage. You can elevate your spouse to such a level that is very unhealthy. That's an idol. Worship God. Enjoy. Live in covenant. But some people, they get things out of whack. They put things in the wrong place. Proclaim the gospel wherever you go. Expect opposition. Stand firm in your faith. If you start to go through this, it's like, what are going to be some of the takeaways? That's it. And I I can tell you that the church at Ephesus, as we dive into it, they started out on fire. They started out on fire. Their allegiance was to Christ. They were serious about walking with the Lord. They were seeing God do amazing things. And as Paul even writes this letter, it's probably around 60, 61, 62 AD. The church was on fire. He's going to speak a word of blessing. He prays over them. He's like, man, remember who you were, man. It's grace. And he's going to really build them up on how to live out the faith. And then about 30 years after 
this letter. There's an old dude that gets exiled out to a place called Patmos. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, write this to the seven churches and write this to Ephesus. Hey, I know how serious you were to start off with. And I know all these things you fought for and stood for. But 30 years later, he goes, I got this against you. And it's easy to start out on fire. It's easy to say I'm all in. But as time starts going on, we can start to drift. And John even writes to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. He goes, hey, I got this against you. You left your first love. He didn't say you lost it. He goes, man, I'm telling y'all. Y'all were so fired up and you were engaged and you were, you were walking out the faith, but I, but I got this against y'all. Years later, after Paul has written this letter, after the church has been planted there out of Acts 19, John is over here saying, do I, Lord, tell them they've left their first love? They left it. And I think that is so easy to do, Tiffany. We get fired up, we start, and it's like, hey, I think I lost that. You didn't lose it. You, 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 you didn't lose it. You just left it. You ever gone on a trip? All of a sudden, get into the car. You get about an hour, two hours down the road, and we're going to the beach. It's going to be a great week. And all of a sudden, you go, oh, my God. I left. I didn't pack any underwear. I just remembered. I got socks. I got shorts. I left them. I didn't lose them. I just left them. I tell that story for one of my sons. But it's like, you left it. You left it. But I think we do that with Christ, right? Jesus, I'm following you. But yeah, we got to build this family, and yeah, we're going to get this huge house, and we're going we're gonna to build up our financial portfolio. But we do a lot of that without him saying, hey, let me, let me keep you center of everything that I do. See where we're going now? You see the importance of where we're going to go in this thing? I want to encourage you as we dive into it. There's going to be principles. There's going to be things we build on. Next week, we're going to talk about the blessing of verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. We're going to be moving into this. Hey, let's memorize as much of this as we can. It's a powerful blessing to walk in. But I want to encourage you, get rid of any idols, get rid of anything that is creating filth and contamination and hindrance. Let's get our focus back on the Lord, okay? Hey, thank you so much for watching the message. Uh, we hope that you really pulled some things out of it. And just know that our desire is for every person, whether you ever step in this building or not, to become fully alive in Christ. Yeah, we want to see you committed to Christ. We would love to see you connected to others in a small group. And we believe it's important to uh, become a contributing member to the body of Christ through uh, sharing your faith, uh, as well as financially investing in the work of God. 
That's right. And so we pray that you're growing, that you're striving forward. There's so many resources on the website. You can watch past messages, your testimonies from people. We pray that you utilize those. And we hope to see you on a Sunday morning. Hey, make it a great day and enjoy uh, the abundant life in Christ.